You're listening to the On the NBA Beat podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. With the NBA regular season set to resume Thursday, we're back. Thanks for finding us. I'm Aaron Fishman, here to introduce a terrific guest, beginning with some fun facts about him. This man was once a little boy in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, where he successfully executed a figure four leg lock on an older kid named Owen. As further evidence of his love for wrestling, this man used to force visitors of his apartment to take photographs with a framed picture of WWF wrestler Tatanka. On at least one occasion, this man attended a college party wearing catcher's equipment. Without further ado, this man is Dan Devine, an editor for Yahoo Sports' Ball Don't Lie. With Dan, we'll mainly focus on major storylines surrounding the trade deadline, how he enjoyed All-Star Weekend, Nick's drama, and this week's colossal Lakers management shakeup. Good thing Dan inspired his friends to use the term danter when he won't be quiet. We're going to need a lot of words from him right now. Welcome back from New Orleans, Dan. How's it going? It's going well, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. Our pleasure. It's going well here, too. A lot of exciting all-star break stuff. You've covered a number of all-star games. This was your third one in attendance. Just if we had to flash forward five, ten years or something, and you could pinpoint one thing that you're most likely to remember from these all-star festivities, let's say excluding the DeMarcus Cousins trade, what do you think it would be? I mean, the DeMarcus Cousins trade is a pretty big one. Uh, It was sort of the biggest thing of the weekend. Um, I think I'd have to say the disappointment that attended Aaron Gordon's drone dunk and I say no shade to Aaron Gordon. I think that it was a clever idea. It was creative. He must have felt like he had to raise the bar so high after performing like he did last year in Toronto. But being in the gym, being in the arena for that and like watching the drone fly out and people kind of being like, oh, and like there's a sort of like buzz in the building. And then it doesn't work the first time. Oh, yeah. And- and they have to like float the drone down and pick up another basketball and try to get it back up again. Like if you just like saw a pressure gauge and it was like the or the like the excitement level was like all the way in the red, act so excited. And just you see the needle just going further and further back down to like zero excitement as the drone thing just keeps not working and they have to yeah. keep re- reloading the basketball. It was a bummer, but that was to me was sort of like the tone setter of the evening or for the for the competition for that that dunk contest, at least when that didn't work out. It was like the air got let out of the arena. And it's a it's a bummer. I mean, like, you know, they, the, the last two years of dunk contests, Zach Levine's first year in Brooklyn and then the Levine Gordon dunk contest in Toronto were so good and so so much excitement at those things to see them like all the sort of blood get drained out of it like that. It was kind of a pain in the ass, but it was memorable, if nothing else. I feel like I will remember that many years down the line. I can imagine how much of a letdown that was, especially, as you said, how great Aaron Gordon did the previous year. I think the Craig Sager tribute also will be something that stands out years later, at least for me. He was just a mainstay at the All-Star game every year. 
I was going to ask you also just away from the festivities it was around Mardi Gras time to what happened that you can talk about that you're comfortable <laughs> talking about? What, what, what did you enjoy just in the city? Sure, sure. Well, there's not. Um, luckily, I'm I'm kind of a washed father, so there's not like a whole lot of stuff that I did that I can't talk about. Like it's not like uh, I was I was ripping and running till four in the morning every night, and also like you're running around working <laughs> and trying to get stuff written. So there's there was only so much hanging out that I did. But restaurant wise, like I'm I'm not really a foodie or something like that. But when I get to go out and get to travel, it's cool to check out things that people have recommended. And I'm sure I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but there's a place called, uh, I think, Cochon, Cochon, C-O-C-H-O-N, that I got to go out to lunch at. And it was fantastic. I don't even, it was like a pulled pork kind of thing. And then with like chicharron, like like cracklings on it. And like, it was amazing. I, I didn't really realize what was happening until like I got back to the hotel. I walked back from the restaurant to the hotel. I had finished writing something and I had to like just go back to the hotel, get myself together so I can go to the arena that night. And I walked in like literally like in a daze. And so I get off the elevator and I see Tim Bontemps from the Washington Post, Kevin Pelton from ESPN. A couple other people were there too. I think like how, um, uh, Sam Amick from USA Today. And I'm like, I see them in the lobby and kind of like, hey, what's going on? But they're all looking at me like, dude, are you okay? Are you are you good? Do you need anything? Because I was just sort of like, my like, eyes glazed over in like a meat coma. So that's a weird thing to bring to other people. I was bringing a weird energy to that moment. But luckily, uh, they sort of pointed me toward the elevator to go back up to my room. And after after a little while of sort of collecting myself, uh, I was I was able to, to make it back over to the gym for for the all star game. So that was good. Yeah, obviously, the big news, which we mentioned off the top of the show during all star weekend was the blockbuster DeMarcus Cousins trade that went down on Sunday, sending DeMarcus Cousins to the Pelicans, teaming him up with Anthony Davis. Right now, the race for the ace seed in the West looks really interesting with a bunch of teams still in contention there. Denver, Portland, even Minnesota, New Orleans, and Dallas still all mixed up in there. For a lot of this season, that ace seed was sort of talked about as cannon fodder for the Warriors in the first round. But first of all, how do you handicap that race currently after that big trade? Do you think New Orleans has taken over as the favorite to come out as the eighth seed in the West? It's it's tough to say. I think if they're not the favorite, they're, they're, they're right there alongside the favorite. I mean, to me, you know, Denver has been really, or I shouldn't say really good. They've been quite good since they um, elevated Nikola Jokic back into the starting lineup at center and sort of reorganized their attack to where he's, you know, the fulcrum of everything they do. Like middle of December, I think, like December 15th, something like that. They've been, you know, the best or the second best offense in the league since that point. He's been tremendous. Uh, and everybody seems to sort of play off of him defensively they they continue to be a train wreck but they're scoring the ball so well and moving you know moving guys around efficiently everybody's cutting everybody's moving and their attack is just so potent even though they don't have dominant offensive players or guys that you would consider to be dominant offensive players that they've become a, a much stronger team over the last like month and a half two months than they were to start the season so i, I think they they are a stronger team than they look that said so have the pelicans been i mean we we kind of forget they opened up, I think it was two and ten or something like that, with Drew Holiday out of the lineup, and they've been much closer to a 500 team since he came back into the into the fold and gave Anthony Davis, you know, pick and pop partner, and you know, became their top perimeter defender. So that I think adding Boogie to that lineup, you know, giving them that sort of core three, 
with Anthony Davis and Drew Holiday gives them, as a, from a talent perspective, you know, maybe the best you know, the best core that you can offer in that group. It's also worth remembering that New Orleans is three games back of Denver in the loss column right now, and they're they've got a leapfrog both Portland and Sacramento. The Kings obviously we expect to fall backward, but they've got some work to do. You know, they're two and a half games out of the eight seed right now. Again, three back in the loss column, and they're going to have to integrate a gigantic piece with 25 games left in the season. You know, I think the talent of DeMarcus Cousins is such that it made all the sense in the world for them to take the the gamble on him, especially given the, the, the very low price that they seem to, that they had to pay for him, but making the fit work neatly and fluidly with him and alongside Davis in the front court, you know, two of the, I think five or six highest usage players in the league, uh, you guys that just constantly have had the ball in their hands, getting them acclimated to playing off of one another and, you know, having opportunity, having times where they just dealt with, they're not going to have the ball for long stretches, rejuggling the rotation. How does Alvin Gentry reconfigure his schemes? All those sorts of things are, they can be difficult to figure out and they're going to have to figure them out immediately to make up the sort of ground that they need to make up to get to the eighth seed. So I guess I wouldn't call them the favorite, but I would say if they can, if they do get some of those things figured out quickly, uh, they can put a whole lot of pressure on Denver. Yeah. As you said, it's no small task to, integrate this new player into your offense leapfrog i think three teams ahead of them in the race also a factor that you might have to consider is demarcus cousins is slated to be suspended every other technical foul that he picks up his attitude might be better with the change of scenery but i feel like that's something you have to take into consideration as well but if the pelicans are able to make the playoffs do you think that front court Anthony Davis and Boogie Cousins, could that cause some problems for the Warriors? Not saying that they could potentially win the series by any chance, but like, you know, steal a game, have it not be just this rollover series, especially because the Warriors, if they do have a weakness, it might be their front court and rebounding. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, they. I, if, if I'm the Warriors, I really don't want to see the combination of DeMarcus Cousins and Anthony Davis in the first round of the playoffs. Because even if that's a four-game series, even if it's a five, you know, maybe a gentleman sweep of a five-game series, you know, you're talking about losing a pound of flesh along the way. You're going to take a beating on the inside from those guys. Like, you're absolutely right when you, when you point out the only thing that really has seem to give the the Warriors any issues this year, sort of slow them up or, you know, be a stumbling block for them has been when they've been physically, you know, beaten up and they've been manhandled when they've had difficulty uh, on the interior. They've had difficulty with Cousins alone. Uh, you know, Sacramento beat them uh, earlier this month, earlier in the season. They've had a difficult time handling Davis. I mean, they, they've beaten the Pelicans when they've gone head to head, but Anthony Davis has had monster games against them. And, you know, you're, they're just going to be getting back uh, on the other side of the All-Star break. Zaza Pachulia and David West, in, in all likelihood, coming out of the break here. Guys that have been missing for a little while. But, you know, as you're talking about how the, the Warriors front court lines up and matches up, just from a physical perspective, the, the size and the skill of DeMarcus Cousins and, and Anthony Davis would make them awfully, awfully difficult covers for you know, Pachulia, West, JaVale McGee, um, you know, as you move down the line into the, the sort of the, the younger lower tier guys like, you know, Kevon Looney and Damian Jones, you know, the, these guys, James Michael McAdoo, they, they, they'll all get a, a crack at those guys, I would imagine, because you'd want to, you know, use your fouls and your athleticism in whatever degree you can. But it, on a long enough timeline, the Pelicans just don't have enough talent to match up. And, you know, the Warriors have too much shooting and too many offensive weapons in that series. But you you would take you would say you would have to pay a toll to get out of that matchup. 
which is why I think it'd be fascinating. And it'd also be kind of a styles make fights matchup, right? Like the mm-hmm. Warriors want to go small, spread you out, uh, you know, bomb away and, and crank up the pace. And if you're talking about, we, we have to assume, I think, that whatever Gentry decides to do with these two big men, they're not going to play 100 miles an hour. It, it doesn't seem to make the most sense in terms of how you, you would maximize DeMarcus Cousins and th- th- having those two big men sharing the floor to, to play up tempo. So, you know, you, you, yeah, you do have the, you know, the bully ball kind of approach versus sort of pace and space and hitting the gas. I think it'd be, it'd, it'd be fun to watch uh, unless you were a Warriors fan and you're like, I just want to get through this as quickly as possible. Moving on to one of the few teams in the West, it seems that isn't in that contention for the A seed in the playoffs. News came out yesterday that the Lakers were letting go of Mitch Kupchak and Jim Buss, elevating Magic Johnson to be the president of basketball operations and hiring former agent Rob Palinka as the GM. I think the timing on this was especially interesting coming just two days before the trade deadline. And the optics is also a little bit interesting, especially with regards to the Buss family. Jim Buss remains a partial owner of the Lakers, despite essentially being fired from his job. How do you assess that situation and what's the thinking around there? Yeah, I, I think you're right to to note that it it raised eyebrows, certainly doing this two days before the trade deadline. But the the explanation tendered by Jeannie Buss when they, you know, she and Magic Johnson went on their sort of press tour yesterday after the announcement was, you know, if we know we're going to make the move, then why wait? If there's an opportunity for them to an opportunity for the Lakers to, to change things up a little bit, to, if there were some moves that they were looking to make or considering with Mitch Kupchak and Jim Buss, you know, they'd had their opportunities to pull the Lakers out of this sort of death spiral that they're, that they've been in the last four years and to, you know, to rebuild and to reorganize. And the, the organizational idea was where well, we're going to keep taking big swings at top flight free agents and then swing and a miss, swing and a miss, swing and a miss. And then you're winding up you know, paying whatever it was, like 160 or so million dollars total to Luol Deng and Timofey Mozgov, you sort of burned through that that goodwill. And if Genie Bus was looking at it and saying, I don't think we're going to move forward with these guys in this way, then now that Magic's here, once you once you actually brought him into the fold a few weeks ago, why waste time? You know, I, I get the idea. That said, yeah, I think the possibility that there wasn't going to be anybody with basketball operations experience at the top of the food chain, making those calls or, or, you know, making, receiving those calls, having those conversations and making those decisions was a, a potentially a, a frightening one. If you were a Lakers fan, or maybe it was you know, meant for some dicey hours there when we didn't really know what it was going to be. My Im- immediate thought was, well, maybe this means, cause magic is saying after he gets hired, you know, we're looking to hire a GM. We're working on that right now. So you're thinking maybe, Okay, they're not going to do anything significant or of con- major consequence before Thursday. They're kind of, it's going to be let's get past the deadline, get to the end of the season. We'll sort of make our hire and reorient around that. And then several hours after he's hired, they trade Lou Williams, which to be fair, Lou Williams, uh, you know, on a, a relatively short term contract, not going to be a long term piece of their future. The idea, given that he's been having a career year and is, was an, an attractive piece at a nice price, was going to be to flip him anyway. You know that you wind up getting a first-round pick and Corey Brewer, who obviously Corey Brewer is just there as a salary filler, but you get a, a, a you know late first-round pick in exchange for Lou Williams, who wasn't going to be part of the future plans anyway. And you say, okay, that seems like a pretty shrewd move as you continue to try to build out your young talent base, especially considering if Lou Williams being gone makes the Lakers a little bit worse now down the stretch. You know, the more losses they stack up, the better their odds are of falling in the top three of the lottery. 
And if they fall outside the top three, they give their pick to Philadelphia. So the worse they get this year, that helps them coming for draft position. And they pick up another draft pick in the process. Magic's first deal seems to have gone pretty okay. Now, I guess as long as they don't do anything drastic again before Thursday afternoon, you can say you know, that we're off on sort of a solid footing, especially considering that you, know, you have to consider, look at least somewhat favorably on the idea of bringing in Rob Palenka. Magic said he wanted to get a, a guy, a, you know, a GM that was going to be not only a sort of a smart and, and, and you know, well thought of guy, but somebody who was familiar with the collective bargaining agreement, conversant in the salary cap, had great relationships around the league with players and other executives and yada, yada, yada. And then you bring in somebody who, you know, reps James Harden, reps Kobe, has had, you know, a, a significant client list, uh, has done negotiations with a ton of different teams and organizations and things. So, like, the early steps seem promising and maybe more promising than a lot of people thought based on Magic's Twitter. Yeah, I mean, I'll talk around, like, the analysts around the league. It seems like the Lakers are transitioning from, as you said, trying to look for these home runs and whiffing on all of them to trying to move towards hitting singles and doubles, not to mix up my uh, sports metaphors here. But <laughs> The other side of that trade, the Rockets adding another offensive weapon in Lou Williams. It seems like Lou Williams is perfect for the D'Antoni Mori ball system. He is shooting 40% on catch and shoot threes this season. He's over 50% from the corners. He gets the rim, he draws fouls. Do you think he could be an X factor for the Rockets for the remainder of the season and going into the postseason? I think that it's certainly possible. Yeah, the, for me, I, the idea that I like is sort of, he's sort of like a pint-sized version of James Harden in the way like he, where he lives at the rim and he lives at the free throw line. You know, pick and roll off the dribble playmaker who's capable of, sort of generating offense on his own like that and carrying an offense for stretches off the bench. That's why he's been so successful pretty much everywhere he goes as that, even though he's had not always been a great shooter in his career, has been an efficient producer of points because of where he gets to on the floor and you know where he's, he uh, hits his shots best from. As you said, I think it's a perfect fit for what they would like to do in Houston, what, what has made them so successful under Mike D'Antoni this year. And I'm interested to see how he fits in rotationally with you sort of, you know, step into Corey Brewer's minutes, but the role is obviously different, right? You know, you, you expect different things from Corey Brewer than you would from Lou Williams. So, you know, does he wind up handling the ball more in second unit lineups? Does that mean you want to spend you know, more time with Eric Gordon off the ball? You know, does, how does, how does he sort of interact when he shares the floor with Harden, with Eric Gordon, you know, with, with Patrick Beverly, how do those guys all sort of interplay promises to be interesting to figure out, but the Brewer spot, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't shooting the ball well this year, and he hasn't been the kind of defensive player that he was in years past. So it was a spot that they could certainly upgrade, and they upgraded it with a guy who maybe do, is duplicative to some degree and the talents that they already had on on staff on the roster. But he does what he does really, really well, and another shooter is never going to go, you know, go to waste in a Mike D'Antoni system. So I think he's a guy that can get hot. He can carry you for stretches. His game gets a little bit. You know, it might not be quite as effective in the playoffs because drawing fouls is a big part of it. But if he keeps shooting the way he has in L.A., you know, in this D'Antoni system where everybody's spaced out and there's way more open looks, uh, he can certainly be a damaging player. One of the first trades this year was the Mason Plumley yusuf Nurkic deal. I think it's pretty rare to see two teams, especially in the same division and with around the same record, essentially swap players of the same position. How would you assess the trade? 
Yeah, I, I think you're right. Especially they're both going for the eight seed in that situation. And you say, well, you know, are, are we just trading problems? Uh, I think some of to some degree it's financial in nature for Portland. They don't they didn't want to be locked into paying Mason Plumley when his deal comes up, you know, extending him long term. He had occupied a an important role for them. You remember last postseason, he was sort of like their Draymond Green as a short role playmaker when opposing teams would try to trap either Lillard or McCollum, get the ball out of their hands, you know, try to get the ball to Mason Plumley at the free throw line and let him be a passer and a playmaker. And he's pretty good at that. You know, he struggles from the free throw line. He's not an elite, you know, offensive player one on one, but you know, pick and roll, dive man, finishing lobs, making plays on the short roll. He can do some things there. Not a great defensive player, but, you know, talented. But uh, Nurkic is younger and his contract doesn't come up until until further out. Nurkic had played really well uh, in Denver a couple years ago before getting injured. And then, you know, has not been the same since his injury. And it was completely got overshadowed by Nikola Jokic. So the uh, the hope for Portland, I think, is if you can get Nurkic, when you get, you get him back health to, to full health, get him sort of a, a change of scenery, a breath of fresh air, and maybe he can rediscover some of the, sort of the, the bully ball kind of offense that he was playing that made him, you know, an intriguing player a couple of years ago in Denver. And, you know, that way you, you kick the can down the road a little bit financially after spending all the money that they spent this past year to lock up CJ McCollum and Alan Crabb and bring in Evan Turner, and you know, those sorts of moves. So the I think finance is an aspect there and, and hoping that you can get some some reclaimed value from a guy like Nurkic. Yeah, it would seem to me that the Nuggets were trying more with the deal about making the playoffs this year. And like you said, the Blazers are looking more down the line. So another early trade was the Sergi Baca Raptors trade. Toronto, through the first half of the season, they were the best offense in the league, even more efficient than the Warriors. But then it pretty much fell off a cliff. They did have a minor injury to DeMar DeRozan, but there was a lot wrong there. Do you think Ibaka is the difference maker they need at this stage of his career? Mm, It's tough. I, I think I would say it gets them closer. It closes the gap somewhat with the Cavs, but I, I still I don't I still don't think I would pick Toronto in a series against Cleveland at this point, even with Ibaka. I mean, it's worth remembering about, you know, Ibaka did not have a great start to the season. Uh, the, the first two thirds here with with Orlando, you know, I, I can't claim to have watched every every magic game in the beginning part of the season. But whenever I would watch them, it seemed kind of often like he was floating, like he wasn't necessarily always locked into where he was at. And that could be because, you know, the situation is just really unsettled in in Orlando right now. You've got guys playing uh, at a position, you know, they're trying to figure out if Aaron Gordon's a small forward or a power forward. And, you know, you bring in Ibaka and then you sign Bismack Biombo and minutes are weird and Nick Vucevic is there and sort of everything's a little bit jumbled at that point. So I, I think it's fair to say we did not see the best version of Serge Ibaka in Orlando but you don't have to crank the clock back too, too far to remember him being a difference maker. He was a beast in the playoffs last year against the Warriors and against uh, San Antonio as well. When they, Oklahoma City was, you know, all, all of a sudden they're playing small ball and they've got Ibaka at the five and Durant at the four and, you know, small ball such as it is with a guy that's seven feet tall and a guy that's a 6'11 shot blocker. But, and they're all over the place and they're, you know, putting pressure on the Warriors ball handlers and they're making them see double and triple every time they, they put the ball on the floor and they try to you know make something happen. Ibaka was a huge reason and why the Warriors really struggled in the first four games of that series. And he might not be able to get to that level for 82 games. He might not be able to get to that level constantly, but I think that he has that capacity as a defensive 
presence as a weak side shot blocker, rim protector, a guy who can still travel out in space, a guy who can step out on the floor. I think he's shooting something like 38% from three this year, can space the floor, opens up some possibilities for Toronto in terms of their lineups where, you know, you could maybe pair him with Patrick Patterson. If you go, if you want to go small and go sort of five out, create some different looks offensively. I think it introduces some versatility and some options for Toronto, but I don't, yeah, I think it's, it's going to come down to if Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan can be two of the three best players in a series against Cleveland for seven games, then I think you have a real shot. But if they're not able to do that and sort of carry that offense consistently against a, a, a Cavs defense that can crank it up when uh, the money's on the table, then I think the Toronto can be in trouble. We have a, a lot else that we're trying to get to, but I did want to touch on the Celtics. They have an interesting situation here. It's a little bit tricky given the timing of our recording and the trade deadline. The trade <laughs> deadline is Thursday at 3 Eastern, and something could happen with the Celtics at the very last minute, definitely, and that would be huge news. But just if you can, just briefly try to simplify for us your uh, understanding of Danny Ainge's thinking with that trade-off between sticking with the core or swinging for the fences more, trying to get someone like Jimmy Butler, for instance. Sure. I mean, listen, if I knew exactly what Danny Ainge was going to be doing, I'd be doing it in everybody's, uh, I'd be, you know, I figure either writing something brilliant that would get a lot of traffic or I'd be running an NBA front office. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. You're, you're right to sort of, to, to note that it's a, uh, a delicate balance and you come to a point where you've got to really, you've got to make a decision one way or the other, right? Everybody's been waiting for, for years for Danny Ainge to swing for the fences. They, you know, with accumulating all of these deals, accumulating all of these assets rather with young players and picks and, you know, an, an amazing haul from the Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett trade where they're still, you know, they're benefiting from the, the pick swaps and the assets that they got from the Brooklyn Nets and, you know, advantageous moves, bringing in Isaiah Thomas and the, you know, sort of below market contracts that they threw at guys like, Avery Bradley and Jay Crowder. I mean, they got Jay Crowder and a pick uh, for Rondo, which is crazy to think about now. But there's the concern of if you sort of blow up something big and you maybe disrupt the chemistry on a team where everybody seems to be pulling in the same direction and it's been good enough to get them within a couple of games of the Cavs and the number two seed so far, do you risk blowing that up by swinging for the fences for a big star? But Danny Ainge has also made it clear that that's the goal. The goal at, at some point is not just to be pretty good for a long time. It's to put yourself in a position where you have the capacity to add that, you know, picture shifting player, the guy that can change the landscape, whether that can be Paul George or Jimmy Butler. You know, those are you know the, the two biggest names that I think are, are likely to be continued to be talked about before the deadline, uh, in part because I think that neither the Pacers nor the Bulls are totally sure which direction they want to go. If they, if, you know, if they're cool with just being like the six, seven seed and trying to see if they can win a playoff series and, you know, be good enough right now, or if they feel like they've maybe maxed out where they're at with their existing cores and they've got to, you know, shuffle the deck. I think they're trying to figure that out as well. So I think that makes it difficult to get a good grasp on where they go. I'd say if Jimmy Butler really is available my sense is Jimmy Butler might be more available than Paul George is uh, that the Bulls might be a little closer to move, making that move than the Pacers are with Paul George. But if Butler's available and what it takes is one of the Brooklyn Nets picks, say this, you know, this year's Brooklyn Nets pick and 
you have to make sort of make your picks of some of their young asset the assets, whether it's Jay Crowder or Avery Bradley or you know, Marcus Smart, people like that, you know, Jalen Brown, their first round pick from this year, trying to sort of address those things. If, you know, if, if it's a couple of those can get you Jimmy Butler, maybe, you know, if, if it's three, you know, I think you really have to consider it because suddenly you have another player who, if offenses trap Isaiah Thomas and, and take the ball out of his hands at the end of playoff games, you have another guy who can create one-on-one. You have a guy who can guard the best player on the opposing team every night, even if that's LeBron James. Now, obviously, LeBron James will still continue to score, but you that's a different caliber of player than it currently exists on the Celtics roster to handle those sorts of wing talents. And it would be a, a something big to to sort of shuffle the deck and to integrate. But this is the idea, right? This might be the the weakest the Cavs look for a little while, where you've got Kevin Love injured and J.R. Smith's going to be coming back from injury and tons of minutes on LeBron, tons of minutes on Kyrie, not a particularly deep bench. This might be your chance to take that, to take him out, take that swing. And, uh, you know, this is why you stockpile all those things. It's why you build the war chest. Uh, yeah. Getting Danny, getting Danny Ainge to, to to pry it open though has been a difficult thing over the last few years. Yeah, the East is really interesting. The West too. There was a lot of angst, I would say, among the Clippers fan base with Griffin and Paul being able to opt out. Reddick's free agency coming up, but really good news in the last day or so with Chris Paul verbally agreeing to that big time extension, and also he's been medically cleared to return. To what extent do you see the Clippers as a contender? Some people are, are skeptical of that. Some people are more optimistic. I think, I mean, there's there's certainly reason for skepticism, given that the Clippers have gotten torched by the Warriors pretty much every time they've they've come across in the last couple of years. But I think all that matters for the Clippers, basically, is can you get Blake Griffin, Chris Paul, DeAndre Jordan, and J.J. Redick healthy at the same time in April? If you can... You got a shot. That core is so good and it remains so good. And the pieces around them are not, I mean, are not, you know, world beating pieces, but, you know, guys like Mo Spates and Raymond Felton have been upgrades this year over what, you know, their sort of equivalent players were last year. You know, you've got Austin Rivers, as much as Austin Rivers has been sort of a, a joke at times on the basketball internet, like Austin Rivers is pretty good. And Austin Rivers, with uh, Chris Paul out recently, the last 13 games before the, the All-Star break, pr- you know, producing, we're, you know, a, a guy who can defend a little bit on the other end of the floor as well. Like, you know, th- they have more players. Obviously, they would love to find an answer at small forward, which has been the big sort of blank spot uh, in that starting lineup for the last few years. And they have a lot of guys that have sort of tried to fit in that haven't been able to you know, make a major dent. But if those four guys are healthy and sort of in their rhythm come the playoffs, I think they've got a puncher's chance against just about everybody, maybe with the exception of the Warriors. But listen, last year we thought, you know, we would have thought the same thing. And then Steph Curry slips on the floor and suddenly things get get a little bit dicier for them down the stretch too. You have no, you, you don't know what can happen once you actually get to the postseason. But if you've got everybody healthy, once you get there, you give yourself a chance. And seeing Chris Paul be cleared for a return to the floor after about, I think it was it's five weeks to the day after surgery, as opposed to, you know, six to eight weeks was the original uh, timeline. He, even if he doesn't come back right away for the first game or two after the break, that's huge. He, you know, he's been able to stay, you know, continue working out. He's back at practice. You know, the, the quicker they get him back on the floor, reacclimated and, you know, back into working with Blake and Jordan and JJ again, like it can only mean good things for the Clippers down the stretch. Stepping away from the trade talk just for a second. I know one of the biggest stories all season, especially in the first half, has been 
the drama surrounding the New York Knicks. And I, I know you're from the New York area and I think grew up a <laughs> Knicks fan. So I assume it's especially interesting to say the least for you. What do you see in store for the Knicks in the near future in terms of how they can turn their franchise around? Do you think that requires doing something with Carmelo Anthony or Derek Rose or maybe dealing with Phil Jackson in a different way or how, how that affects the team makeup? Oh man. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there are a lot of things that, that maybe could be done and should be done with the Knicks. Um, I think in terms of Rose, you know, there've been rumors that Minnesota is interested in, you know, the framework of a Derek Rose for Ricky Rubio deal. I, I mean, if that were to happen, it would add, you know, it would add money for a couple of years in New York. But I think Rubio, as a as a playmaker and defense, as a, an on-ball defender, a team defense defender, and a guy like a, a pass-first playmaker, I think he might be great for the development of guys like Kristaps Porzingis and Billy Hernan Gomez. I think that you know that might be a an interesting fit, uh, even if it means taking on money that reduces your flexibility in terms of trying to you know land maybe max level free agents in the next couple of years. Barring that move and i haven't seen any other sort of lines connecting you know the knicks and rose to anybody else significant really i think the big thing that i would want to see the knicks do with derrick rose is just if i'm looking for for the knicks from a rebuilding perspective is just don't resign derrick rose come the end of the season he hits free agency this summer his 21.3 million dollar contract comes off the books he has produced fairly well but has been an uh, i believe a net negative over the course of the full season based on what he gives up defensively on the other end of the floor and just straight up left, right? Like there was like a period where he just dipped and just left from the team and didn't tell anybody for a minute. And which now is like the seventh most weird thing that's happened to the Knicks this season. But I think you're, you find yourself in a position where if he's not going to be a, a, you know, a MVP caliber offensive engine and he's going to be a defensive sieve and you have some questions about building around him as the leader of the team and giving him a big deal, then you have to just let him walk. With Carmelo, I mean, this is where maybe some personal bias gets into it. I feel like, yes, it would make sense from a rebuilding perspective, a bottoming out perspective to be able to move off of Carmelo Anthony if it makes you worse this year and improves the value of your pick, gets you up near the top of the draft makes it more likely you would be able to land a potential franchise point guard that could pair with Porzingis for the next several years. I think that all makes sense. You know, why be spending max or near max money on Carmelo if the if the ceiling of this team is maybe a 500 or slightly above 500 team? I get that. I don't know that I've ever really believed that Carmelo Anthony is the problem with the Knicks. I think sort of the Knicks are the problem with the Knicks and Carmelo Anthony is just somebody that's sort of one of the many actors that's been involved in this particular drama over the course of the years. I mean, sometimes you even, you know, what through what, you know, no matter who's at fault, you sometimes reach a point where things need to shake up. So, if, I mean, if they were able to find a deal that pleased Carmelo Anthony enough to where he would be willing to waive his no trade clause before the deadline and that would then that deal would return, you know, something in the way of an expiring contract cap flexibility and maybe a future first round pick. I think you'd certainly have to consider that. But I think checking off all those boxes before Thursday at 3 p.m. is going to be pretty tough for them. One last question for you, Dan. Thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time and insight. I want well, t- time for sure. I don't know about insight, but no, in- insight for sure. Which dark horse team in each conference do you think has the best chance to disrupt a Cavaliers Warriors rematch? And I'm not going to allow you to pick the Spurs. 
<laughs> That's fine. I wasn't going to anyway. So how about that one? Um, you win. I'm going to go with the number three seeds in each conference. I think Houston is that offense is a straight up meat grinder, man. It just chews you up and spits you out when they've got everybody going. They can be absolutely terrifying and hard. James Harden can be the best player on the floor, uh, even in a game against the, the the Warriors. I think, I mean, because of how disappointing last season was with the Rockets and the way things sort of fell apart with Dwight and Harden, we forget the season before when they did meet up in the the Western Conference Finals. Those first two games in Golden State, the Rockets were right there. Like last couple of possessions of those games could easily have stolen at least one game in Oracle during that first season. And if they do that, who knows how the complexion of the series changes. And Harden was tremendous. They had zero answer for him. So Yes, the Warriors are uh, are better now, and 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 you know have Kevin Durant, and uh, every once in a while I still find myself going like, holy crap, they still have Kevin Durant. But the the way the Rockets can spread the floor, the way they can bomb away, they have so many good shooters, they have so many players who can who can make plays. Lou Williams only adds to that. If they can keep Harden fresh down the stretch here, and they enter the playoffs with that arsenal. You know, three-point shooting is the great variable, right? You know, it, you know, if the Rockets hit 23s a game, I don't know what the Warriors do about it. So they would have a great puncher's chance based on the way they, you know, the volume of shots they generate and the 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 way they can knock them down. And then in, in the East, I mean, last year, heading into last year, I wondered before the season, we did sort of a roundtable pick them thing about who was going to be the second best team in the East. And I picked the Wizards coming off that second round loss to the Atlanta Hawks where John Wall broke his hand in the middle of the series and looked like the second best player in the conference. And if he hadn't broken his hand, I think they would have beaten the Hawks and gone into the conference finals against the Cavs. I mean, obviously last year did not work out for me in that way, but Washington's been awesome, man. They're 21 and five since Christmas. Otto Porter has been playing great. Bradley Beal has been playing great. They finally got Bradley Beal and John Wall healthy at the same time. And it's been, they've been awesome together. Their starting five has been lights out, you know, blowing people off the floor. They're trying to address their depth at this trade deadline. We've seen them take the Cavs to the limit, send them to overtime in D.C. uh, last month, one of the best games of the season. And I mean, I think John Wall, same thing. John Wall can can be the best player on the floor in a game in that series. And I think if you get, you know, the other guys stepping up, the other, you know, supplementary pieces you know, holding their end of the bargain and the Cavs are a little bit wobbly. I think Washington can put a real scare into the into the Cavs. So those would be my I don't know if you can necessarily consider the number three seed in the conference, the dark horse, but those would be the ones that I would pick. Yeah, some exciting developments to pay attention to. Absolutely. Thanks again, Dan. My pleasure, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. 